0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to uh, worship together through the teaching of your word, recognizing that learning how you think and how we should think is the highest form of worship. Father, we realize that the greatest priority, the highest priority in our life is to be the inculcation of the word of God that we might be able to exchange all of the human viewpoint in our soul for the divine viewpoint of your word. Father, we pray for our nation. We continue to pray during this time of uh, this war on terrorism and the continued and heightened threats. We pray that you would uh, watch over the nation, provide us with security, protect us, especially during this election season when there seems to be a, a more and more rumors of, uh, of attacks and terrorist assaults of one form or another. We pray that you would give skill and wisdom to those who are in charge of security, that they might be able to spot these things, that those who are in the intelligence field will have an understanding of what they need to hear and will spot the things that uh, they need to pay attention to. Father, for us as a congregation, we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And that one of the most important things we can do in our role in this war against terrorism is to take in the Word of God to apply it consistently in our own lives and to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that we might be mindful of this, that we might be able to focus, concentrate, take in your word this morning under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, 7. And here we address one of the most wonderful doctrines in all of Scripture, and that is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is going to return, that He is coming back physically and bodily to this planet, and He is going to establish His kingdom and rule and reign on this planet. Whenever we talk about the appearance of Christ, we also have to recognize that there are two aspects to His coming. The first is the rapture of the church, which takes place before the tribulation. And this is not the subject of Revelation 1-7, something we have to study this morning. Revelation 1-7 reads, Behold, He is coming with clouds, every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, as we look at this passage, I want you to note uh, one, one thing. I have on the overhead the text from the New King James Version, which is similar to the King James Version. And that is, uh, they don't have an English article before the word clouds. And that's in, if you're using a New American Standard NIV, there is a, an article there, and the Greek text does have an article there. So it should read, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Now when we come to this passage, we need to ask a couple of questions. When is this coming with the clouds? When does that take place? Because clouds, of course, or the fact that he is coming in the clouds is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So is this a, a rapture passage or is this a second coming passage? We also need to determine who is referred to here by those who pierced him and also identify all the tribes of the earth in the last, uh, in the last sentence. So, This is going to be the outline and structure of understanding this verse. Now another thing we need to note is that this is one of several verses that has become sort of a battleground text in this uh, war with a new interpretive school on prophecy that has sort of come back from the dead in the last ten years or so known as preterism. So we have to answer some questions and spend a little time understanding what this thing is called preterism because that's uh, showing up more and more. It's a steamroller movement in terms of uh, pro- uh, the interpretation of prophecy. Well, first, let's get a general map so we understand what, what's going on prophetically as we understand it. After the cross, Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. And the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. That began the church age, the age in which we now live. There is no prophecy that is fulfilled in the church age related to the church age. Let me say that again. There is no prophecy in the church age related to the church age. Furthermore, no prophecy must be fulfilled, must is the key word here, must be fulfilled in the church age, for the events that will transpire in the tribulation. The next event that Scripture makes clear is on the prophetic horizon is the rapture of the church when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds and the dead in Christ are caught up to be with Him in the clouds. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord in the air. This is 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17. The rapture is followed, maybe not immediately, but it seems like there will be some sort of transition period before the seven-year tribulation begins. What begins the tribulation is not the rapture of the church, but the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and the nation Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9, 27 and following in the... Um, a uh, famous passage on Daniel's 70 weeks. The tribulation period ends with the second coming of Christ. second coming of Christ is when Jesus comes to the earth, destroys the Antichrist and his henchmen, the false prophet, all those who follow him, and then establishes his kingdom on the earth, his 1,000-year rule and reign on the earth. Now, there's a lot of different terms that we use related to prophecy that sometimes confuse people. The first set of terms has to do with the relationship of the rapture to the tribulation. Now, you just think of this as before, during, and after. Pre-, mid-, and post-tribulationism. Pre-tribulation rapture means that the rapture comes pre-trib, before the tribulation. This is what we see on the chart. Mid-tribulation is a position that the rapture occurs about the middle point of the tribulation. The church goes through the first three and a half years and then it's raptured halfway through. There are many problems with that. We do not believe in that position. There's also a variant of that today called the pre-wrath rapture of the church, which sort of puts the rapture three-quarters of the way through the tribulation. Uh, we won't go into that. Then there's the post-tribulation view that the church is raptured as Jesus is on his way down at the second coming of Christ. So we sort of get, it's like a yo-yo, we get raptured and come back down and and there's no judgment seat of Christ, no rewards in heaven. There's just this up-down effect. Now we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that Jesus Christ comes back before the tribulation. As such, we believe that all of the events described in the major prophetic passages of the New Testament are yet future, that many of the prophecies in the Old Testament are yet to be fulfilled, prophecies related to the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom. Therefore, we interpret these passages as futurist. Okay, we've got some good vocabulary going this morning. We believe these things take place in the future, so that's called a futurist interpretation of of Scripture. But there are some that think that this has already happened, and those are people are call preterists. So we are going to try to figure out what preterism is. What is preterism? We'll let the preterists speak for themselves. Kenneth Gentry is a well-known preterist Theologian says that preterism is based on the Latin word preteritus, meaning gone by or past. Preterism therefore holds that the tribulation prophecies, and those are the passages in Matthew 24, otherwise known as the Olivet Discourse, and most of Revelation, he says, Preterism holds that the tribulation prophecies occurred in the first century, thus in our past already happened tribulation took place antichrist was revealed all that's done and over with what they're really saying is that this had to do with with the events surrounding the destruction of jerusalem and the temple in 70 ad now that sounds like a really bizarre position to our ears this position was virtually dead for half a century but it has come back like gangbusters And these men who are promoting it seem to be getting more and more exposure on television, on radio, and more and more people are hearing this. And a couple of well-known names have been swayed by this, and so it's having an impact. So to be knowledgeable about what's going on in your world, you need to understand this, because someday you'll hear it, and if you're not well prepared, you're going to fall prey to this. David Chilton, another preterist who has since gone to be with the Lord, and thus he has figured out what the truth is, uh, wrote that the Olivet Discourse is not about the second coming of Christ. It's a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So that's what they're focusing on, that, that all of this really is code language during a time of persecution in the church. It's just secret code language to prepare the Christians that, at that time For what would happen in 70 A.D.? David Chilton writes that the book of Revelation is not about the second coming of Christ. That's news to us, isn't it? He says it's about the destruction of Israel and Christ's victory over his enemies in the establishment of the new covenant temple. What does he mean by new covenant temple? See, the new covenant's the church. The temple is your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So see, that's what this is talking about. Not a literal temple in Jerusalem, but the New Covenant Temple, which is the church in the, in the, uh, church age. And he says, in fact, that the word coming is used in the book of Revelation never refers to the second coming. Well, we'll see. That's just not true. But he says the main focus of Revelation is upon events which were soon to take place. That's why I emphasized earlier in our study that when John says that these things must quickly take place, and there we have the Greek word um, uh, uh, quickly take place, the Greek word "takos," which has to do with, it can mean soon in in a matter of time, but it also can describe the manner in which it happens. And the manner is it happens quickly, that when it happens, it happens rapidly. And the same is true at the end of verse 3. There's another word, when, when John writes that uh, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written in it for the time is near. That's the Greek word ingus, E-G-G-U-S and the g double gamma is pronounced like an N-G, ingus. And again, it can be used in a time sense. It's going to happen right now. It's near in the sense that it could be tomorrow or it can be in the sense of uh, of happening in a in a manner that is quick or rapid. It's the the words are used in a somewhat parallel sense. So, um, this is their argument, and they base a lot on that. And we'll talk about that later. Now, one person who's very well known has a has a, uh, a national radio ministry and teaching ministries. A man by the name of R. C. Sproul, and I read some of his books years ago. And R. C. is a uh, uh, five point Calvinist. He's a covenant theologian, and he has become convinced in recent years of the preterist position. He writes, I am convinced that the substance of the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in A.D. 70 and that the book of Revelation was likewise fulfilled in that time frame. He sees a lot of merit in what's called the partial preterist approach. Now, one of the reasons I emphasize this is, this isn't such a problem for us because we don't get too much of Christian radio around here so you don't run into this but i get questions from tapers out there who run into this all the time and they see people that they've known that have uh you know been dispensationalists who are now being listening to RC Sproul on the radio and being swayed by these arguments so even though this isn't a problem right here in new london county it's a major problem in the rest of the country so we just that's one reason we can be thankful we don't have a lot of elements of Christian Christian radio. So what are the basic approaches to interpreting prophecy? We've got three or four charts to work through here. This chart shows what preterism does. Now here we start off with the cross, the ascension of Christ and this red arrow. And then this section here is the church age, followed by the rapture of the church. This period here is the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And then we, that is followed by Christ's return in the millennial kingdom. Preterism believes that most of prophecy, 90%, was fulfilled prior to this blue line right here, which is 70 AD. Now that doesn't, 70 AD doesn't show up real well on the chart, but it's, it's, uh, that, that's what that time is. So all this was fulfilled in the first century, and there's just a little bit that's fulfilled in the future when Christ returns. In fact, there's actually three different approaches to preterism. The extreme view of preterism says that everything came, everything happened before 70 A.D. Not only are we in the millennium, but we're in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, didn't know that, did you? I mean, go to passages in Revelation, says no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain, no more tears, the old things have passed away. See? You just don't trust Christ enough. Well, we're in the new heaven and new earth. Well, I think if that's true, we're in—we must be in a ghetto or something. We messed out. That's called extreme preterism, and there are actually people who believe this and teach this. Then the second view is called moderate preterism, which sees most things uh, fulfilled in AD seventy, but there's still a few that are being fulfilled in the um, in the church age. Uh, then there is a view called mild preterism, which saw most things fulfilled with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Another aspect of fulfillment, uh, took place in, uh, with the ascension of Constantine in the fourth century and the identification of Christianity with the Roman state. And, uh, and then there, that pretty much, uh, fulfilled everything. And then there's a few things that take place at the end. But we're still in the millennial kingdom in some sense. That's preterism. Second approach to interpreting prophecy is called historicism. Now, you don't run into this. You may not run into preterism so much, but you will run into historicism. And historicism is the idea that all of Revelation in Matthew 24 basically map out the entire church age. So you see fulfillment of those passages all through the church age up through the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom. Result of that is that you can go through and you can identify where we are in Revelation. And some people will say, oh, we can spot the Antichrist. Let me see, if you run into somebody, like there's a, there's a local uh, quasi-celebrity here, owns a couple of Christian bookstores, who's written a book identifying Saddam Hussein as the Antichrist. Now, first question you need to ask yourself is: Are we in the church age? The answer is yes. Then you don't know, and you can't identify the antichrist. If you think you can identify the antichrist, you have bought into historicism to some degree. Now, this was really prevalent in the late 18th century, in the 1700s. Go back and you read about 80 percent of the sermons that were written. In um, in the colonies, and they all identify George the Third as the Antichrist. See, this is historic, or, or they would identify the Pope as the Antichrist. See, these are all systems that are buying into historicism to some degree or another. But we hold to a view. See, here we go. Uh, in historicism, the Popes are the Antichrist. The seal, trumpet, and bold judgments are fulfilled during the events in Europe during the last 2,000 years. So you can go back and identify the Reformation with some event in Revelation 8 or 9, let's say. But you can just lay Revelation over history. And they're into date setting. Anybody who thinks they can set the date of the rapture or the second coming, they have bought into a, a historicist interpretation of prophecy. However, we are futurists, and here's that how that is graphed out in this chart the not, this this empty box here indicates that nothing is happening prophetically until the rapture of the church that all the events of matthew twenty four and revelation four through twenty two are yet future they have not yet been fulfilled that is called futurism so just to acquaint you with vocabulary here, because I will be referring to these terms again and again and again as we go through Revelation, and you will become familiar with these charts and graphics as we go through this so that you can make sure you get this vocabulary down. Now, Revelation seven, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. The first word is the word behold, which is the Greek word Edu. I-D-O-U. This is a word that is an idiomatic word. It derives from the aorist middle imperative of Adon, which means to see. And it is a word that is used to draw attention to something. We might liken it to the uh, military idiom 10. No, let me have your attention. Every eye on me. So that's the idea here. Every eye on this. Focus on this. John wants us to draw attention to what he is about to say. If uh, he were doing this on a computer today, he would put the verse in bold face and italics. He it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And I already pointed out there should be a definite article there. He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. So there are four elements in this verse we have to address in order to fully understand what the Holy Spirit's communicating to us. First of all, we have to identify the nature of the coming. What is the coming? For rapture, second advent. As part of that, we have to understand the meaning of this little word, and, right here. Um, uh, this little word, it's kai. See, the word translated and here is the Greek word kai. And the Greek word here is also the Greek word kai. So how do we understand this word, even they who pierced him, in relationship to the previous clause, every eye will see him? That's all part of understanding which coming this is. We have to understand those elements. Second, we have to understand this concept of clouds. What Clouds. What does that mean? Is that literal or is it figurative? Or is, is it a literal use of the word clouds, but it's not referring to your normal, everyday, uh, cumulus, cirrus clouds that you see looking out the window. There's a significance to these clouds other than simple meteorology. He's coming with, with the clouds and then we have to answer the question, every eye will see him. Who's the every? Every eye on the earth, every Jewish eye. Which is it? And then in all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. See, the preterists will translate that because of the use of the word geis for earth. There sometimes refers to the land of Israel. They'll say, well, this is referring simply to a local Jewish event. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye, that is, every Jewish eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, see they translate that as, and, that is those who, every eye will see him, that is those who pierced him. So they try to equate those two passages. And then they'll say, and all the tribes of the earth means all the tribes of the land, all the Jewish tribes will mourn because of him. So what they do is they try to localize Revelation 1-7 into simply a private, local, Jewish event that occurred in 70 A.D. So we must uh, whenever we teach, we have to teach in light of what's the, sometimes in light of the heresy that is being taught today and being promulgated. So let's uh, begin by looking at this. The phrase "he is coming with the clouds" uses the Greek verb uh, Ercomai" in its present middle indicative form. "He is coming, not "he will come with the clouds." And often in Greek you will, and Hebrew is the same way, you will have a prophetic or futuristic use of a present tense. That means the event is so certain in its, in its, uh, taking place that the writer uses a present tense when he is talking about an event that is yet future. So it's a future event, but it is so certain that it is spoken of as if it is happening right now in the present. So, this is the essence of the, the verb, uh, erkatai, uh, which is the present middle indicative form of the verb erkamai, meaning to come. He is coming. Now, the question is, when did this, when is this going to take place? Is this going to take place in the future, or has it already taken place? Is it going to take place at the rapture? Or the second coming? We have to answer that event and answer that question. Now, in order to do that, we have to look at the key phrase, the key interpretive phrase in this whole verse. And the key interpretive phrase in this whole verse is this phrase right here, even they who pierced him. See, if we understand that verse, that phrase, understand the use of chi there, and understand the significance of that phrase, they who pierced him, then that helps us to interpret or understand the whole passage. And it's a quote from Zechariah twelve, ten. Zechariah twelve ten. Once again, can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. How do you interpret these things in the Old Testament? How do you I mean in Revelation, how do you interpret various signs and symbols in the Old in the New Testament? In prophecy, well, you don't just just guess at it. You don't just come up with a nice interpretive scheme. You have to go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us how these things are to be understood. In Zechariah 12.10, God is speaking and He says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now, we have to correct the translation here as it's pictured in the, in the New King James. See, they, they, and I don't know, maybe the New American Standard does this as well, where they capitalize the Spirit there, as if this is the Holy Spirit. Uh, is that true? Those of you using NASB or NIV, do they capitalize Spirit there? Okay, that should not be capitalized. That's an interpretive decision. You don't have uppercase letters in the in the Hebrew or in the Greek. That's a decision the interpreter made that this must be the Holy Spirit. But it's not. It's the Number one, you don't have a clear... I mean, I think it's clear to us in light of New Testament revelation, but you don't have as clear a, an understanding of the third person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But it is defined here as a spirit of grace and supplication. Now, the term translated spirit is the Greek word ruach, which, like, the, like its equivalent in Greek, pneuma, can mean attitude... Or thinking, uh, and that's what happens. God is pouring out grace on on the Jews that survive the tribulation. That's what this is talking about. And it's talking about uh, a, a spirit or attitude or disposition of grace and supplication, God's grace in helping them to survive at the end of the tribulation. And as a result of God's grace, they respond in gratitude and they will call upon the name of the Lord and respond. So that's what is meant by that next phrase. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, looking on me whom they pierced, first of all, this is a clear identification that, and prophecy that God is going to be pierced. And that the speaker here, of course, must be the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is an anticipation of the crucifixion, that the Son of God would be pierced in crucifixion. But looking on Him is not simply the physical act of looking at Jesus Christ. But it is looking with faith. Let's take an Old Testament uh, situation. You had the situation of the fiery serpents in the in the wilderness when because of uh, it, Israel's disobedience God uh, sent a plague of fiery serpents and these serpents were such that when they that their bite was fatal and it inflamed and burned and in order to deliver them from the illness that it brought and before they died Moses was told to uh, create a an, an image of a bronze serpent and that he was to hold that up And those who were bitten by the serpent simply had to look at that bronze serpent and they would be saved. See, that's faith. It's not looking with consequent works. It's not um, looking and doing something. It's not walking the aisle, raising their hand, or going through other things that are confused with faith. All they had to do was look. That tells us a lot about what saving faith is. Saving faith is simply looking at Christ in, in, in the sense of uh, trusting Him for salvation. And that's the idea here, is that at this time, as a result of God pouring out grace and deliverance on the people, that they will respond. They will, the supplication is their calling out to, to Christ to deliver them. And that's the last verse in Matthew 23, that Jesus says He won't come until they... They uh, call upon me. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they will look on me whom they pierced. Now that's the background for understanding uh, Revelation 1.7. So let's look a little more at this passage. Zechariah 12.10 goes on to read, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So they're going to grieve. There's going to be a mourning because they recognize what they have done. They realize with all of its severity that they crucified the second person of the Trinity. That when their Savior, the Messiah, came, they rejected Him and they killed Him. Verse 11, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Now, uh, Hadad Ramon is a village near Jezreel in the plain of Megiddo and it was at that place that the uh, great uh, king Josiah who was a great believer and a uh, mature believer and great leader of Israel was uh, killed in a battle with Pharaoh Necho the second and um As a result of his death, there was tremendous mourning in Jerusalem. So there's an analogy here that when the when they recognize that they have killed the Messiah, they will mourn as deeply and profoundly as they did when Josiah was killed. Verse 12 reads, And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves. So there's... It, the, the by themselves emphasizes personal, individual volition, and as each individual responds to the Savior and trusts in Christ at his return, then there will be consequent grief for what happened historically at the cross. This goes on down through uh, verses 13 and 14. Now let's go back to our passage in Revelation 1 uh, 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. So who are the they who pierced Him? The they who pierced Him are the Jews. Uh, this is really not something that is, that is debated uh, by, the, uh, by the preterists. They believe that they who, uh, they who slew Him... Refers to the Jews. Everybody agrees with that. But it is going to be the relationship of that to the uh, previous uh, verse. So let's, uh, let me go back. Put the verse on the overhead again. His, Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now that word translated even here is the Greek word chi. And the Greek word chi can be used as a simple conjunction can be used as a simple conjunction, and, every eye will see him and those who pierced him, which um, would indicate that uh, there, there are two groups of people, every eye will see him and those who pierced him. Or it can be used in what's called an ascensive use, which indicates a, a subset of a larger group. You have a large group, every eye will see him, that's every human being on the planet will see Him when He returns. Even, that is, a special subset of that group of humanity is going to be uh, singled out here, even they who pierced Him. So the emphasis for John is that the Jews will finally respond to Jesus as their Savior. Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. Now, let's go back. We went to the center of the verse to identify who's being talked about. Now, let's work our way back. When we looked at the phrase, even they who pierced Him, what we saw is that that is a quote from Zechariah 12.10. That If we looked at the context of Revelation 12, we would know that this is a second coming passage. This is when the Messiah comes and establishes His kingdom in Israel. So that tells us, that the coming of Revelation 1-7, when this group looks on on the one they pierced, that that coming is the second coming and not the rapture. Because the rapture is not a visible event to every eye and to the Jews. The rapture is an invisible event where Jesus returns in the clouds for His church. And those who are not believers are, are not going to see Him or behold Him, they're simply going to be aware of the fact that a certain segment of humanity has instantly disappeared. So by analyzing the phrase, even they who pierced Him, we understand that, that the phrase, He is coming with the clouds, is a reference to the second coming of Christ, which takes place at the end of the tribulation. It is when He comes to the earth and establishes His kingdom on the earth. Okay, let me go through these slides. Now, he comes with the clouds. This is the second thing we have to look at, and that is the preposition that's used here in the Greek. It is the Greek preposition meta. Meta means with, simply with. It is the preposition of accompaniment. It marks association in a general sense, denoting the company within which Something takes place. That's a strict dictionary definition. It indicates accompaniment or association. This is not the preposition that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. See, it's a, even in English it's a different preposition. In the clouds is different from with the clouds. In the clouds... It uses the Greek uh, preposition in plus the noun nephilase, which is the feminine dative uh, plural. That's, uh, that's what the FDP stands for, feminine dative plural. Clouds uh, is in the dative is either means or instrumental. That is, he comes by means of the clouds. I don't think that's the idea. Or Location. And I think that's the main idea. In plus the dative here indicates location. He is coming in the clouds. Where is Jesus going to be when He returns at the rapture? In the clouds. But you see that's a different idea than you have in Revelation 1-7 where He is coming with the clouds. So we have to understand the significance of clouds. What exactly does that mean? Well, this calls for a little word study on the word clouds. Fascinating concept of how clouds are used in the Scripture. But to understand this, we, we have to understand some of the false claims that are going on today. Preterists claim that clouds associated with the presence of God in the Old Testament indicate something negative. They're the, the dark, foreboding clouds of His righteous judgment. It, it portrays uh, Him coming in judgment. So their claim is that Revelation 1-7 is Jesus coming in judgment. That's what the clouds indicate. He's coming in judgment. And see, the preterist position is that Jesus came in a non-personal way, whatever that is, in a non-personal way in 70 A.D. in judgment. That's the second coming. That's what He was talking about. That's what Revelation 1-7 is talking about. Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, You know, sometimes people get into scholarship and they just... uh, they just have to invent things because it gives them a, 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 a real thrill. It feeds their sin nature. But to understand this, we have to look at how the word clouds is used in Scripture. Now, to in a word study, what you do is you start with the context. So we ought to see, first of all, how clouds are used in Revelation, then how clouds are used in the New Testament, and then how clouds are used from an Old Testament perspective. So you work your way out from the immediate context. Well, in Revelation 10.1, we read that that uh, John said, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, there's some debate here whether this is the Lord Jesus Christ or not, and there's some indication that it could be, because in what we'll see in Revelation 1, 11 and following is that Jesus appears when, when John sees the vision of the of the seven golden lampstands and one in the midst like the Son of Man, who was clothed to his feet with a uh, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. John says his his head and his hair were were white like wool, white as snow, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Okay, second thing is that rainbow is associated with the presence of God. We look at passages such as Isaiah 6, Ezekiel, where I, Isaiah and Ezekiel both have visions of the throne of God, and other and there are various other passages in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, where John sees the throne of God, it's surrounded by a rainbow. There's something about the presence of God that gives off a rainbow. Now, we think of a rainbow and its meteorological manifestation on the earth, and we studied its source in Genesis uh, 9 with the Davidic covenant, that in the post-flood environment, there's something about the meteorology that allows for a rainbow to be seen, which could not be seen before the flood. And it's a sign of God's covenant with Noah that he won't judge the earth by a, by a flood again. But the, the rainbow as it's manifested on the, on the planet now, is merely a reflection of a rainbow that surrounds the presence of God in heaven, so here we have our, this this angel coming down from heavens, clothed with a cloud, rainbows on his head, his face like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire incidentally in revelation one we 're also told that the countenance of the Son of man was such that he um, that his face uh, His face shone like the sun in all of its strength. So this looks like this could be the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 10.1, that this clothing with the cloud has something to do with the presence of God. We often see clouds associated with His presence, not merely in judgment. Revelation 11.12, they heard a loud voice. These are the 24 elders. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, uh Wait a minute. No, the, the, they heard a loud voice. Revelation eleven twelve is the two uh, the two witnesses. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, "Come up here." And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. So the two witnesses that are killed and then uh, resurrected three days later ascend to heaven in a cloud. Who else ascended in a cloud? Jesus. Acts one. We'll see that in a minute. Revelation fourteen fourteen. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now the cloud is a white cloud. It's not a dark, foreboding cloud of judgment, although he, the, the sickle indicates judgment. But this cloud is associated simply with the presence of God. Revelation fourteen fifteen. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This is Jesus. He's associated with a cloud in his presence again and again. Uh, let's go outside the book of Revelation. Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. This is Jesus talking about the second coming. Remember, Matthew 24 is an answer to the Olivet Discourse, is an answer to the question the disciples asked, what will be the sign of your coming? Okay, so it's second coming material, not rapture material. And he says the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Where have we heard that before? All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. So Matthew 24 is a background for understanding understanding Daniel, I mean uh, Revelation 1-7 and we have that phrase Son of Man. Well where does the phrase Son of Man come from? Well, we studied this. It comes out of Daniel 7, when you have all the various human kingdoms that are identified as beasts, and then there's the last kingdom, and the Son of Man comes and destroys all the human kingdoms. But let's uh, just briefly turn there to Daniel 7.13. I don't have this on the the overhead. Daniel 7.13, and we see another backdrop to this particular verse. Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with uh, what? clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, clouds of heaven can also, also clouds are related to the angels. So here the word clouds could be used figuratively to refer to the hosts of heaven. Not literal clouds. Not necessarily clouds related to his Shekinah glory, which we'll see, but clouds related to the angels. I think the clouds are related to a Shekinah glory. I don't think they're the, they're, the, it's a metaphor for the angels here, but we'll, we'll get into that. So we look at the fact that the context of Revelation 1, talking about Jesus coming in the clouds, it shows us that in Revelation, clouds are often associated with the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, in Matthew 24, Jesus said that, that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then in Matthew 26:64, Jesus said, "It is as you said, nevertheless I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven." So again and again, we see the same imagery related to second coming events. Just another note on clouds in Acts 1.9. When Jesus had spoken these things as his last departing uh, instructions to the disciples that they were to take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the world. Uh, While they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Once again, cloud is associated with the presence of God. In Acts 1.11 uh, the two angels appear and looked at the disciples who are still sitting there gawking looking up wondering where in the world is happening as they watch Jesus blast off into heaven these angels said men of Galilee why do you still stand gazing up into heaven this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven ok so it's talking about a visible return you don't see him at the rapture but he, what happened? You have that cloud association at the second coming. We've already looked at First Thessalonians 4:17 that this is in the clouds, indicating in the atmosphere, which is where the church-age believers will meet the Lord in the air. You have that parallelism that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, let's go back to the beginning on this cloud thing. This is interesting. Genesis 9.13, first of the word cloud in the Old Testament. God says, I set my rainbow in the cloud. Isn't that interesting? Ezekiel, you see God's presence surrounded by clouds and rainbow. This isn't something that just happens. This isn't just an interesting little meteorological phenomenon. When you see rainbows in the clouds, that is to remind us, of what it's like to look at the throne of God. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. First mention of the concept of clouds. Skip ahead into the book of Exodus. We see the presence of God indicated by a cloud. Exodus thirteen twenty one. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. See, this is the evidence of the Shekinah, the presence of God, the glory of God, a pillar of cloud by day and fire at night. Exodus twenty-four, fifteen: when Moses goes up into the mountain uh, to be with God, a cloud covered the mountain. Is this judgment? No. It's the presence of God. Now the glory of God, we read in Exodus 24.16, Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So it's not judgment. Again and again, you don't necessarily see this judgment idea. Well, a couple of other places, uh, Exodus 24.18, Moses goes up in the midst of the cloud in the mountain, and then Matthew 17.5, when you have the at the Mount of Transfiguration, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased; hear Him." So, cloud represents the presence of God. Now, let's look at a couple of other uh, other passages. Uh, I'm just going to skip over these. Uh, When In Joel 2, you have clouds again, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. When is this? Joel 2 takes place at the end of the tribulation. So this has to do with Jesus Christ coming, that there will be like morning clouds spread over the mountains, as people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. It's describing the end time events. Uh, Same thing in... um, uh Zephaniah and many other passages of Scripture. Okay. The day of the Lord is described in Zephaniah 1.14 and fifteen. Just skip down to verse fifteen. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation, desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of what? Clouds and thick darkness. This is when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Now back to our verse. Every eye will see Him. Well, who are the those referred to in that passage? The every eye who sees Him, every human being on the earth will see Him. At the second coming, His return is visible. We don't know how that happens. If He returns on the on the Asian side of the planet, which He will, over Jerusalem, how will those in North America see Him? We don't know, but they will. The Scripture makes that clear. Somehow... God in His omnipotence will make that possible. And then He says, All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. And this phrase, all the tribes of the earth, is a technical phrase. It's used many times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated all the families of the earth uh, in the Old Testament. But this is a phrase that refers to Gentiles. It's not a phrase that is used to refer to the Jews. For example, in Genesis 12:3, "I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." That's the same phrase. So that's not talking about Jews. It's talking about Gentiles. All those, um, all the tribes of the earth is talking about all of humanity, all the Gentiles, not just Jews. See the preterists say this refers only to the only to a local Jewish coming. But that doesn't hold up in light of, of exegesis. We have the same phrase in Genesis twenty eight fourteen. In you all this the in, in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Once again, it's talking about Gentiles, not just Jews. Zechariah fourteen seventeen And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king. it's talking about Gentiles, all of humanity. So, when we look at this phrase, we see that um, this is referring to the second coming. And all of humanity will mourn because of him. Not just the Jews. They mourn. We saw that in Zechariah 12. But all the tribes of the earth Will mourn because of him, and then he concludes with the phrase, "Even so, Amen." And last time I pointed out, this is a phrase used about nine times in the in the uh, text of Revelation, and it means, "So be it." It's based on the Hebrew word that is one of the synonyms for faith, indicating certainty and uh, stability. Now, briefly. Let's run through these slides. These are familiar. I've done this before. But we want to wrap wrap up and I'm getting short on time. The contrast between the rapture and the second coming. This shows us there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. First of all, the rapture is for believers only. The second coming at the rapture, believers are translated to heaven. But at the second coming, there's no translation at all. Jesus is coming back to the earth. So the rapture is translation of believers. Second coming, no translation. Rapture is translated saints go to heaven. At the second coming, translated saints come to the earth. We're accompanying Jesus. John fourteen one through three. Jesus says that um, that he is going to heaven to prepare a place for us. That where he is, we may be also. Where He is, is in heaven, not on the earth. So we go to heaven at the rapture, but at the second coming we return with Him to the earth. At the rapture the earth is not judged, but at the second coming the earth is judged and righteousness is established. So these are two distinct events. Fourth contrast. The rapture can occur at any moment. There's no sign related to the rapture. Nothing has to happen prophetically for the rapture to occur. Now, I pointed this out in the introduction, but that some things may happen. 2,000 years have gone by since Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, or almost 2,000 years. As we go by with so much time, it's very possible that at the end of the church age, certain things will happen on the world scene related to Israel that set the stage for what happens for example we are told prophetically that Israel will re, the Jews will return to the land uh, in, in, uh, twice there will be a return in belief and a return in unbelief they've returned to the land now in unbelief that's a fulfillment of of, uh, of an Old Testament prophecy however doesn't mean the rapture is going to happen is any closer than it was a thousand years ago. See, it's not a sign related to the rapture. It is simply preparation for what will happen after the rapture. But it seems to suggest that the rapture may be near. But the rapture is imminent. That means nothing has to happen before the rapture occurs. But the second coming follows definite predicted signs. You can watch it. You can go through Revelation and Matthew 24 and you know when the second coming is going to take place. Fifth, the rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament. Not there at all. Why? It's related to the church. Church isn't in the Old Testament. But the second coming is predicted frequently in the Old Testament. Sixth, the rapture is for believers only. But the second coming affects all of humanity. The rapture is for believers only. Second coming is for all of humanity. Seventh, rapture occurs before the day of wrath, where the second coming concludes the day of wrath. Rapture occurs before the tribulation, the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And one final point, the rapture has, there's no reference to Satan at the time of the rapture, but at the second coming, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. We'll come back next time and review these with our introduction and then we will go on into uh, the last verse, verse 8, the last verse of the introduction of Revelation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning to recognize how clear Your Word is, how precise it is, how it gives us accurate information about the future. Father, we pray for anyone here who's not sure of their own future not certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can make that certain by simply trusting in Christ as your Savior, believing that He died on the cross for your sins, that having had the penalty paid, all you need to do is rely upon Him for your eternal salvation. Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things that we study today, recognizing the rapture is imminent, that the time is near, And we must be ready. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, which is...